0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'm sure no one has got anything on their minds today other than horror fiction. Yeah, it's election day in the US. That rough beast time has come around and it's slouching towards Bethlehem to be born, or insert your own poetic quote to suit your mood. With everything going on across the pond, it seemed like the perfect time to discuss a novel that's all about kicking demonic forces out of the White House. Our guest this week is Andrew Piper, author of a number of best-selling novels, including The Demonologist, The Guardians, and The Damned. His newest, The Residence, is an historical horror novel. It takes us back to the 1850s, when President Franklin Pierce sat in the Oval Office and contended with ghosts, both personal and political. The book's great, but Andrew and I also talk a lot about the history and legend behind it. Andrew knows a great deal about the White House and its haunted past and if you want to hear about some other possibly less frightening ghouls that have roamed the the West Wing previously then keep listening. So let's go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. There is a weak man in charge and the soul of a nation is at stake. Let's talk Scared. So hi, Andrew. Thanks for talking Scared with us. How are you, and where do we find you today? I'm very well.
1: Thanks for having me. I am in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, looking out at a gloomy uh, a gloomy day.
0: Yeah, I'm looking okay. at a gloomy evening here. It's kind of pitch black and threatening to rain. So, uh, yeah, I share your pain, but I'm glad you're well. <laughs> so your new book, The Residence, was published back in September but we've postponed the conversation until now is it as a certain kind of pertinence for current affairs to start us off can you give us an intro to the book and what it's about sure yeah the, the residence
1: is a ghost story or at least a, a horror story set in the white house but it is a white house that is uh, and a story that is based on um true events um although it is there's A Considerable invention included in the project as well. So specifically, it is the one term uh, administration of Franklin Pierce from 1853 to 1857, a very little known and until uh, the current uh, occupant of the White House, um, a president who was more or less agreed to be uh, among the weakest and um, of the presidents in all American history. And someone whose moral as well as political uh, failings led to, or at least um, he sort of set the table for events that would eventually lead to the Civil War. But the, the, the novel itself, that's the sort of historical backdrop to it. And as I mentioned, there are um, historical aspects to his life, as well as the life of his first lady and wife, Jane Pierce, that give rise or at least open the door uh, for me to write this particular story which as I mentioned is a ghost story and it's more about their personal story their marriage than it is about those larger kind of national uh, issues that were going on in the United States at that time.
0: Good answer not giving too much away there. So my, my, first, qu- my first question off the back of that what on earth could have inspired you to write a story? about the attempt to kick a demonic presence out of the White House.
1: Well, this is unusual. It was an an unusual origin for me um, because typically my ideas for novels are accumulated over time, piece by piece, uh, dream by dream, details, um, maybe a character's voice. And that you know, over the course of sometimes years you realize, oh, I think these things are coming together, they're cohering into a story or so they want to be a story. In this case, I you know fell down a rabbit hole, uh, specifically an internet rabbit hole where I was just sort of wasting time looking into haunted houses. And as we do, exactly, I'm sure you do the same. you know I, my all my sort of internet rabbit holes lead to either you know UFO abductions or haunted houses. And I was in my haunted house mood and I had heard before about lore of supernatural events or ghost sightings that had happened in the White House. So that wasn't new to me. But as I dug deeper into that lore, I came upon Jane Pierce, Franklin Pierce's first lady and wife, as I mentioned. And her letters, these were letters that she wrote Upon moving into the White House, a place where she was very reluctant to go, she had made her husband Franklin promise her not to put his hat into the ring for the Democratic Convention, which he did behind her back and won and then went on to win the election. So she was, for those reasons, deeply disappointed with her husband, but far more deeply she was in grief uh, because in in the days and weeks prior to the inauguration, she lost the third uh, of her three children, uh, the third of, of whom, Benny, was died, and it was the sole fatality in a bizarre train derailment. She was on the train, so was Franklin, and Benny was uh, with, the, with them, and he died in this derailment. And so she is a mother who goes into the White House having lost all of her children in a place she doesn't want to be, and there she writes letters Addressed to Benny, uh, her most recently deceased son, in which she pleads with him to come back to her, and according to her letters, he does. He and not I interpret the her letters to mean not in a sort of a comforting, phantasmical form, but in a corporeal form that she describes him standing at the bedside and being in the room and entering the room, and as soon as I read that. I thought, there's a novel here. Um, and that that was, you know, coming back to the beginning of my answer, that was unusual for me to, to sort of uh, accidentally bump into the idea for a novel because uh, it's usually far more, uh, you know, stretched out and tortured than that.
0: I was going to ask why you picked Franklin Pierce as your presidential protagonist because there were so many, you know, presidents who were, whose tenure was marked by personal tragedy that that could have almost fit this, this template um, Lincoln being one, you know, George Saunders wrote the great, you know, Lincoln the Bardo about, about his, the loss of his son and the, and the ghost story around that. But it seems that you actually came to this story through the first lady rather than through the president himself.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I, um, I found Jane Pierce's voice and the, the facts of her loss and this appealing to her dead child to come back to where these are very uh I- I, to me irresistible um gothic narrative hooks but i i was additionally you know you mentioned lincoln I, I was perhaps perversely the deeper i got into my research and thinking about it as a novel i was attracted to the fact that they weren't well known that this that the pierces were not the lincolns and that you know when you ask people or you know now i talk about the book a lot now that it's been published talk about Franklin Pierce and um, you know, most people have never heard of the guy. Those are all appealing aspects to me and and, in part because it was uncharted territory, but also um, there was an opportunity I felt to bridge a gap to, to, or to maybe it's better, better put to say to create an origin story of a demonic presence in the white house where it, it lines up with real history. I mean, the Franklin, the, the Pierce's were real. These events are real. Jane's letters were real. But that it wasn't burdened with the overly great mythological weight and fame and, and importance and recognition of, say, a Lincoln. That uh, the Pierce's, by virtue of their being overlooked, there was something appealing to me in that underwritten space that I, I thought, well, no, this is a good point of entry for me.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Cause I, I to be perfectly honest, never, I, I think I'd heard the name, um, Franklin Pierce, couldn't have told you anything about him whatsoever. So yeah, it was quite interesting for, for me as a reader to, to get a different slant on, on American history as well. And I wonder, I mean, you are Canadian, as you say, and, and, and I wonder, you know, as a Canadian, you chose to write a novel about a very tumultuous town in American history and set it in one of its most iconic institutions do you feel that the cultural distance was a benefit or a barrier to that
1: i think it was um i think it was overall a benefit because it it uh, you know being a canadian in in 2020 and a and a uh, you know a thriller horror novelist maybe additionally so there were enough steps of remove from the um uh, the, the the weight and for some people, I think a lot of Americans, the kind of almost pseudo religious seriousness and and distance and reverence that is brought to the presidency and even to the White House just as, as a building, it has an almost church like uh, place in, in in American discourse. And so, I as a Canadian was largely uh, protected from all of that, and that gave me a certain. Uh, boldness, I suppose, or, or, you know, it, 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 I didn't feel those same kind of, that same hesitation, perhaps, that an American novelist might feel that, you know, asking yourself, look, am I, is this violating something? You know, am I moving into territory I'm not allowed to go? My distance allowed me to, to sort of answer that by saying, well, I don't care. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, I, I guess it, there was a naivete that, that protected me. And, and, um, now that I think of it, it's, It's something that I think all fiction writers are wise to nurture because, you know, that naive, no matter what your subject matter, there's a certain, whether it's even your own family, your own relationship, your own marriage, your own, uh, your own past, there's a great utility to the, the uh, innocence of just telling the story without thinking too much at all about the implications of it, the potentials for giving offense. And so, yeah I, I was aware of all you know the, those those dangers, but as i say they were I, I sort of quite willfully embraced the distance of my my you know not being an American and not being subject to uh, the reverence i 'm supposed to bring to this grand office i uh, I nurtured that and protected that and and, and exploited that
0: yeah because it is interesting isn't it I, I, there aren't many buildings in the world that have the you know, that, that are fetishised in the way that the White House is. I'm trying to think about the UK, where there's anywhere that would be so iconic. If you try to set a ghost story maybe in Buckingham Palace, it may have a bit of that, but probably not. The House of Commons wouldn't... I mean, I'm assuming Canada has a similar kind of, you know, dearth of, of those hallowed political spaces. It, it seems to be quite an American yeah. mindset, really, to, to have such reverence for this architecture.
1: No you you know you're right. I don't think there is an equivalent at least not in in um maybe there are some you know uh religious structures or cathedrals or, or I, I but then now that I mention it, none come immediately to mind uh that would be treated in the same in the same way it's it, it's a very american it's a very American tendency to invest that kind of radioactive mythology into a building and they, they you know, Americans do it in different ways in, in, to, to other things and places. And the flag being one, um, you know, the, 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 the strange magical element, you know, treatment that they bring to a square of cotton is, is interesting. I think unique, even among other uh, patriotic mythologies and, and cultures and nations. And it's, uh, and there's something very curious about, about that American reflex to you you see it even in the even, even in the current political debate where someone will voice a criticism of, say, you know, of Trump. And there is a large group of thinkers or voices that respond to the criticism, no matter how well founded, no matter what the criticism is or the facts upon which it's based, the reply it often comes back saying, you're offending the office of the presidency. It's it's inappropriate to criticize the office of the presidency, regardless of the content of the criticism. I think that's a very, especially in a place that's supposedly, uh, you know, the seat of of democracy, it's a very strange reflex, but it's a very deeply American one. And um, as you mentioned, yes, the White House has this position in the American mind that combines the church with the residence, the you know, the 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 leader lives there. His family resides there. It's also where the leader works. So it's an office. The decisions are made there. Um, arguments presumably are had there um, that decide on policy, whether we whether or not the world goes to war, and then it's also um, it's also a, a museum. All the portraits of the previous residents hang on its walls like a. Again, sort of like a gothic mansion with the previous landowners all hung up there with their secrets, uh, you know, embedded in the behind the portraits. And it is um, a pure symbol. Uh, you know, the people's house, it is often called, uh, ironically, uh, because, you know, you can't come within 300 yards of it now. It has all of these meanings kind of sandwiched together and... Even though it it and it can't sustain it i mean it's it's a it's a strange tottering kind of meaning within the American conversation and unlike any other building in Washington that has a more clear purpose, the White House is asked to carry so much symbolic weight
0: that it kind of it ultimately falls apart that's a brilliant answer I've never thought about it as as those all those different things yeah that is that is very true um and and again about the I'm going to use the word, you know, fetishized again, but, but the way the presidency is treated, it, it, I agree with you, it, it's such a unique thing. I mean, in the UK, we have we, we clamour over ourselves to say horrendous things about our, our leaders, you know, like at the minute with the whole <laughs> COVID debacle. Like, it's just, no, no one could, people are queuing up to say the next nasty thing about Boris Johnson. It is a marked difference to, uh, as you say, that, privileging of the, of the position rather than the, than the person in, uh, in America. It, it's fascinating. You speak, though, about not being able to get within 300 feet of the White House. Um, did you actually go to the White House to write this novel? How was the research?
1: Well, I, I had been um, to Washington in, 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 before, before I stumbled on the story, or at least my uh, uh, inspiration to write the story. Coincidentally, ac- uh, my wife and I ha- um, had gone to Washington just for a, a trip, Um, and so we'd done the museums and the tours and yes, we had our picture taken in front of the white house. And so that was sort of the, the research of place that I had in hand, but I had no idea that I wanted to write a novel about Washington, let alone a ghost story in the white house. So my research, when I did come upon Jane Pierce and the letters and the loss of Benny and the idea of, uh, you know, a child returning to life from the dead in the presidential residence. I focused, yes, on the conventional history, what was going on at the time, politically, who were the Pierces? How did Franklin rise to power? Uh, those sort of biographical details. But I was at least as interested and felt obliged to be at least as interested in the sociological moment that were you know that was the 1850 s and specifically the rise of spiritualism in the u s. A time when we have an expanding the, the, the American Empire moving west and the what turns out to be, of course, the very uh, enormous but, but sort of private, or at least secret at the time, the the, the Holocaust of indigenous people, so we have a very busy, very busy economy that's busy taking over the con- continent and killing thousands of people at the same time, we have in its cities a growing population of people who are interested in talking to the dead. So there's mediums and spirit uh, readers and uh, the people who conduct seances. That was a, and it was not a fringe practice. Uh, in other words, the most educated and moneyed elites in America at the time were deeply interested in, in and involved in seeing performances of communications with the dead. and, so were the Pierce's and specifically Jane Pierce. And so that, that aspect to me, I felt, I felt was, was very important to, to show that that was where the country was at that time. And, in, and maybe sort of you know, through the telling of the story to, I hope, subtly suggest that that interest came from the cost of colonialism, of taking, to taking over, of, of slavery. That as a country kind of grows and expands and tells a new story and creates a mythology of heroism about itself, there is rivers of blood that uh, you know sort of um, uh, come out from that delta of expansionism, and I think not coincidentally comes this interest in spiritualism of talking to the dead of trying to maybe diminish the finality of death. The, I, I think that uh, metaphorically. That those things coincide because America is, of course, a country that is that is built on, on violence and and on and on death and on the hierarchy of of, of lives over other lives. It, it's no you know it's no accident that uh, it was a country that was very interested in, in trying to diminish um, the guilt or at least the finality of of, of dying. So you know, that's a long way of saying that, that I, didn't, I didn't go too deep, or I very intentionally didn't go too deep in my research about American history and the lead-up to the Civil War. I, I didn't want to become an, a Ph.D. in American history. I didn't think it was necessary, and I also didn't want the book to be about that. I didn't want it to become bogged down in that. It is a, uh, you know, it's a horror novel, and, and I didn't want to lose sight. Even though there is important, I think, embedded themes in the book, I wanted it to be swift and, 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 and never to lose sight of the intimacy of the story.
0: I really enjoyed the way that you, you kept it, as you say, about their marriage as opposed to the broader political life of the <coughs> nation. But you do, you do use the White House as this great metaphor for America in all its beauty and ugliness. Um, and it feels like the White House provides a kind of cross section of, of American life within itself. Was that something intentional that you wanted to to get across? Very much so. Yeah,
1: yeah. That, I think you, that you've put it very well. That um, I wanted the I wanted that import of the White House as symbol to be to be conveyed through the. This junction between how the White House wanted to present itself, and still does, that is, uh, this shining palace of white, the seat of democracy, the people's house, all these kind of conflating and contradictory uh, meanings. And then you go inside, and it's a haunted house. You go inside, and it is cold. It, it, it's often damp. These are all these are all true aspects of the White White House up until even the 1950s when it had a massive and very necessary renovation. It's never been a very nice place to live. It's built on, uh, well, it's it's adjacent to a swamp, a literal swamp, not a political one, although that may also be the case. It's uh, probably poorly positioned uh, in relation to its surrounding geography. And yes, it is It is haunted, and I mean that in, in, not just in the sense of um, it's a house that in which decisions were made that ended with uh, catastrophes, and, and, and in some cases, in war, but it's haunted according to the accounts and testimony and witness statements of countless people who have lived and worked there. And that, in a way, I think the idea of the, the White House's haunted house, for me, worked on a national basis, too. That Here's a country, America, you know, built on, on freedom and wealth and expansionism and boldness and invention. And then you go inside and you realize, Oh, you know, as, as one comes to realize in all haunted houses, there are certain doors you shouldn't open. You shouldn't go into the basement. Uh, don't, you know, you can go in here, but don't open that one because, uh, you know, that you'll, something will be revealed there. Or something will jump out at you that will uh, betray. The, 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 you know, the rest of it. Yes. And I think the challenge and the challenge I, I put before myself, or at least, you know, was to, to carry that out, but wordlessly, you know, to the extent possible to not draw attention to that intent. It's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And, and um, it'll be up to individual readers to decide, you know, how effectively I've managed it or not. But I think, this is true maybe of all novels, but in a horror novel, maybe particularly so when you attempt to kind of have that, that novel say something in addition to it's scary story, it's compelling kind of surface. There's a danger of the more you kind of, the more ballast you attached to the, you know, the the horror story that it threatens to bring the whole thing down. And so one must be, one must be attentive to that. And, um, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And, and I wouldn't, I, I come out of the experience of having written this novel, having been quite, I'm, I'm pleased with the result, but I w- I would say I don't see myself writing another historical fiction possibly ever.
0: <laughs> yeah. To give, to give yourself a break. Yeah. You know, to yeah. Enjoy it. <laughs> that's yeah. right. when I got to the end of the book, you have quite an interesting author's note. Now, I always love author's notes. I always love the parts where you say, you know, what you got right, what you got wrong, stuff like that. But this is a particularly interesting one because you point out that um, there's, there's quite a lot of of overlap between some of the supernatural goings on in, in your story and and the occasional tale from the White House. And if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of pick your brain on this a little bit and ask you some kind of specific questions because I find it really fascinating. So, first of all, y- you've mentioned spiritualism and, and the rise of it, and the Fox sisters make an appearance in this novel in a in a fairly substantial way. Now, for for people who don't know, the Fox sisters were a, a pair of, of of women from upstate New York who, as far as I'm aware, are, are considered some of the very first kind of mediums of that era, or certainly the most the, the most foremost. Would you agree?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. In, in the most. Um... The most at that time, the most famous and celebrated and, and discussed.
0: Yep. Yeah. Did they really go to the White House, or is that a fabrication?
1: There are indications in some of the histories that I have read that there are. It's not confirmed in the sense of you know we have the receipts, um, but there are very strong indications that at Jane's bidding, yes, the Fox sisters visited the White House, and that that Franklin may as well have been uh, aware of their visit, if not attended the seance or ceremony or, um, the ri- whatever performance they, they, uh, performed there may have also been in attendance. So yes, there is historical indication that they were there. That's very cool.
0: That's, that's a, that's a great little tidbit of information. Um, but you also mentioned some other kind of, you know, um, ghostly goings on, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Can you run us through a few of them, a few of the stories that have, that have been reported? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, um, Well, to sort of work through them sequentially, I mean that
1: you have after Pierce uh, a couple presidencies, a a couple administrations later, you have Lincoln, who, his son, his beloved son Willie, died in the White House. Willie was the exact same age as Benny, the Pierce's last son, and the one that Jane summoned back from the dead. He died at the exact same age, and we know that Jane Pierce, upon learning this news. began a correspondence with Mary Lincoln, Abe's wife, uh, consoling with her. We know that shortly after that correspondence, Mary Lincoln had seances in the White House herself. And that there's strong indication that Abe was part of one of those, at least one of those seances, if not more. And that the main point of those seances was to um, communicate with Willie. So you have a... 12-year-old boy dying and being summoned to the White House through Jane. You have two administrations later, the Lincolns doing the same with their 12-year-old boy. Then you have, you jump ahead to uh, the administration of William Howard, uh, uh, William Howard Taft. So this is 1909 to 1913. And during his administration, there were so many complaints and witness accounts of encounters with a, an entity, that was um, uh, described uh, in very um, hostile, menacing, frightening terms of a young boy, a 12-year-old, roughly a 12-year-old boy, who was called the thing. In the White House, oh, have you seen the thing? All The staff, um, family members, visitors would say, "I've I've seen the thing. And it irritated and bothered and possibly frightened Taft so acutely that he issued a memo ordering all staff to stop mentioning the thing. They weren't allowed to talk about it anymore. I think that's an interesting sequence of, of three administrations of a young boy of the same age either being summoned or appearing in the White House in that, in that period of time. Jump ahead to, to Truman, who, in his own correspondence to his wife, uh, speaks repeatedly uh, upon moving into the White House uh, of hearing scratches and voices and footfall outside of his office door while he was working on in secret working on the final plans for the atom bomb, and he would open the door thinking that there was someone there and the hallway would be empty. And he attests to his wife that the White House is haunted. The White House is haunted. He he's quite certain of it. Churchill spent a night uh, going back a, a little bit. Um, Churchill spent a night at the White House, where he came out of the bath, thought he's heard something in the Lincoln bedroom, where he was staying as a guest, and saw something. We assume that it was Lincoln's ghost. I don't, but I don't think uh, Churchill ever attested directly to that. But in any case, he saw something there that rattled him so thoroughly that he refused to ever stay in the place overnight again. He never did. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands was staying in the White House as a guest one night and heard something also scratching at her door and she opened it and whatever she saw there caused her to faint immediately and she had to receive medical attention. Jumping ahead to the more present day, the Bush, uh, Bush Jr., both of his daughters heard voices coming out of the fireplace in their room, voices that and the music they described as being part of a different era, uh, sort of an older musical form. So this wasn't someone's radio playing hip hop. This was uh, dance music and voices uh, of parties from long ago. So the continuity of these stories and not just the fact that, oh, yeah, there's a lot of ghost stories that happen in the White House, but especially in relation to the thing, the boy, Willie, Benny it does lend support at least uh, you know from a novelistic point of view to the idea that the ghost that jane or the presence that jane summoned to the white house is still there
0: yeah and you've done a brilliant job of kind of as you say threading your own tale through that mythology because in in a in a weird way now that you've told me that your story becomes creepier <laughs> so i don't i don't want to give too much away for the for future readers anyone who's listened to you lay out that chronology who then goes and reads your book, it will give a whole new dimension to, to the events and the, you know, the potential events beyond the final pages of your book. So yeah, that's great. I'm glad I should, I'm glad I asked. That's uh, (laughs) that's really interesting. But, But your book itself in terms of the way you deal with, with the horror, I think it's, it's a refreshingly genteel novel, I would say, um, it's quite a decorous haunting, and it's quite old-fashioned. And I mean that in, in 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 a positive way when I say old-fashioned. Mm. And and one of the things I was most impressed by is the way that you balance the the kind of the the, the archaic modes of speech of the time with you know readability for a modern audience. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but, but was that an intentional struggle that you took on, or did it just come naturally?
1: It was, um, it was something I, I thought about in advance, and I and I because I, I didn't. I've read historical novels that um, uh, try to more directly or explicitly capture the uh, language of the time, and even if it's even even if those books are successful in doing so, or if they fail. Um, to me, there's always a a, a, a a readerly problem in that you know that it, it sort of feels theatrical or or um, there's something sort of just sort of distancing or dusty about it. So I wanted the speech to be more acceptable to the modern ear, but at the same time to not be to not completely ignore the fact that these events are taking place in the 1850s. And for me, the solution and was to try to write as clearly as I could, both in terms of the dialogue, but also the prose and the storytelling itself. I wanted it to be writing that was quite spare in its figurative language, and that on the occasions that I did use uh, metaphor, that it would be very only the best could stay. You know, all all the, you know, all the um, I killed a lot of darlings, and and, uh, and very willfully so to try to create a prose. Um, that was as, as as clear as I could, and I f- I hoped that through that clarity, I would capture the the time that it would have a historical aspect, not through you know, well, this is a word that they used at that time, and in sort of attempting to mimic, but that I would achieve its sort of historical veracity through, again, just a, a clearness of of voice, and it's I think that effort was part of the, you know, the result that you know, this is, of all my 10 novels, it's the shortest. You know, it get it's, it, um, there's, I don't sort of allow it to wallow in scene making. I wanted it to be brisk and clear. And again, through that, hopefully that would be a a way of transporting the reader to a different time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And, and it, it did actually leave the book quite fast paced, as you say, you don't get bogged down in too much. I read the entire thing inside 24 hours, which is, is is quite rare for me. So it does move at a fair clip, despite the fact that you are dispensing with this, you know, historical detail and setting the scene and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it definitely works. But I think the reason I brought up kind of the genteel nature of it is because there is one scene which, for me, really kind of jarred me but in a a very good way in a very very horrifying way and there's one scene of of quite you know perverse kind of sexual terror in case i'm not being clear it's the the part with the the toy soldier Mm -hmm. and that for me was like you know couched in a novel that was so of its time and so mannered i found it really, really quite shocking what was your thinking behind including that scene well I'm
1: pleased to hear you say that because it's it's um um it's a it's a sequence that I'm most probably pleased with from a sheer kind of technical point of view in the book because Jane was so grief stricken and so angry um with franklin she essentially for the entire time that that Pierce was president refused to participate in any of the social teas and meetings and 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 um dinners that a first lady would otherwise be obliged to attend. She instead brought in a substitute, which was a practice that was not uncommon among political American political uh, leaders of that time, presidents as well as perhaps senators uh, and others, where a substitute was typically a woman who would act as a stand-in wife for either for bachelor's, who didn't have a wife, but it was required or at least expected of them to bring a woman to these events, or for husbands whose wives were ill or indisposed. And so, in the case of Jane, she selected her own substitute, Abby, her uh, a cousin, a long uh, a childhood family friend, and a woman who was often described as being a lot like Jane in appearance. And so, for me, when I read that and and thought about Strangeness of that situation, you know, here's a woman who brings in her own replacement, who socializes with her husband, who is a more lively, healthy, outgoing, pleasing version of herself. That for me was an invitation to kind of play with and explore not just that sexual tension, but what what sort of you know, what kind of sexual experience that someone like Franklin or, or, you know, men of that time would have had, you know, they, this was still a time when, um, you know, people got married young. They typically stayed married to the same person all of their lives. This is, and they died younger than we do. So there wasn't a whole lot of space or opportunity among the gentleman class for sexual adventure and, and sexual experience. And, and yet here's a substitute, this woman who comes into this space and, and a wife who's kind of out of the, out of, out of commission. I just felt that there was a great opportunity to explore, uh, temptation in Franklin and to, and to, through the uncanny, to take him to a place where he, on the one hand, experiences something, uh, of great for him, great sexual invention and pleasure, only to realize that it's been engineered by, uh, a darker force
0: yeah it's a very dark scene it reminded me quite you know in a weird way of the scene in the haunting of hill house which gets referenced every week on this on this show um the scene in which the, <laughs> the, the two women are holding hands and then when they turn over the beds are on the other side of the room there was a strange resonance of that for me in in that uncanniness that you talk about. Yes, but equally, I mean, whilst we talked about like men and their sexual experiences in the 1850s, there's a scene in which a kind of omniscient spectral presence implies that a real life figure from history may be a paedophile. Is was that something that was backed by evidence found in your research, or did you did you just decide that this guy was gone enough that we could say what we wanted about him? M- more the latter, really, and and
1: um, and uh, <laughs> it was more for me the idea of the entity in that scene making a bold and perhaps completely groundless accusation. But it was it was more for me that the accusation itself was quite um, had being said so boldly and in a room of other learned, uh, you know, c- committee members. Um, the the president's inner circle something that was n- would never be uttered you know it, it, n- you know now um we are much more uh used to the dialect or the dialogue of sexual a- accusation uh sexual crimes uh, deviancy the harm that can result of, uh, of these kind of inappropriate conduct at that time there wasn't the same language nor was there the space for that kind of accusation or discussion and so i have my accuser state that and kind of just just sort of with a with a view not so much for you know to sort of prove that this was that he had some particular knowledge but just it's a shot in the dark but that uh, the accusation has power because it's he's he's speaking the unspeakable
0: i'm speaking about the unspeakable let's get to the big orange elephant in the room we are recording this two weeks before the American election. It will be going out to be listened to on the day of the election. It feels like all eyes are turned to the White House right now. And I I do wonder how much of your writing of this story was impacted by Trump's presidency. I mean, it might be my kind of single-minded thinking at the moment, but I couldn't help see the Donald as a haunting presence in the margins of this novel. Oh yes, I mean it's true. But you know, it's what's um,
1: strange and 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 upsetting in another sense is that you know I conceived of the book and largely wrote the book in the lead up to the Trump win and its immediate aftermath, which was a very yes a disappointing time. There's a lot of people, myself very much included, who felt, "Uh oh, this is this isn't good." And then over the writing of the book, the completion of the book, the editing of the book. Then the production and publication of the book, all of those things happened over what has turned out to be, you know, the first four years of the Trump administration. And everything just got worse. I mean, it 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 was just one more standard, one more crime um, piling up on on each other. And it just sort of it's an interesting to me, the novel is works. On a personal level, perhaps, as a kind of time capsule of how I thought, well, look here's a really good time to write a horror story about the White House, in which it's kind of an origin story for a demon that lives there and remains there today, as sort of a reminder of the potential for evil to find a way in through the morally vulnerable or for the through the complicit through someone like Donald Trump who is a a profoundly morally weak man, a man who is just very ripe for, uh, you know, de- demonic manipulation. And yet I sort of thought, well, you know, maybe this is, this, this is a, maybe a bold claim. This is a, have I gone too far? And in the period of three and a half years, I've, I've, I've I haven't gone far enough. Uh, so, so rapidly the, you know, the, the, the metaphorical import of the residents as White House, as, you know, demonic residents, It's kind of left that left that in the rearview mirror, and um, and it's all become very real. People talk about. I remember after nine eleven, you know, in a similar sense, people would often refer to it as, "Oh, it felt like a movie. It felt like watching a movie." And I think what people were meaning, I think we're we're talking about the same thing now with you know with Trump. You know, it feel feels like a TV show. And I think what people are saying when they say that isn't so much that they're trying to treat very serious things in an unserious way. I think they're saying it because it feels so unreal, you know, that, that there's, here's real events, but they're violating the rules of what ought to be allowed within reality. And so it's moving into fiction. It's moving into the fantastical. And in the case of, I think, Donald Trump, to my mind, I probably yours too, because we're interested in this genre, it's moving into horror. The Trump administration is a horror story and that's not so much an interpretation or, or I'm not saying you could, you could write a fiction about the Trump administration that treated it as though it's a horror story. It is a horror story. That took me by surprise.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an original thought in horror circles to say that Trump is a living embodiment of, of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Mm. You know, that, that's been said many a time, and, and Martin Sheen's performance in that film, when you watch it now, is, is, is a whole different level of terrifying because we're seeing it on BBC News every day. I'll be up all night tonight watching and, and, and hoping. But there is a beautiful moment late in your book, and it's during an attempted exorcism when Franklin Pierce, he, they're trying to get rid of this demon. And he talks about, you know, summoning the power of millions and how the White House is the people's house and, quote, it's the people that will cast you from it. and And that reads like a real celebration of the kind of very democratic principles that are currently under attack. I've got to ask, was that added in... More recently, perhaps as a direct address to what's going on, or is it just really pressing? No, I, I sort of felt that history
1: constrained me with with Franklin because I you know I couldn't have Franklin completely become an, uh, an abolitionist. I couldn't have him someone who could, you know took you know through this experience, he found the moral courage to try to turn the country around to do the right thing because he didn't. Um, we know from the historical record that he didn't, but through the story through this, through the fictional story of A Demon in the White House, as you've mentioned, that uh, he and Jane and a few of the other characters attempt to exorcise from the house and thus from the country. I use that idea of Franklin kind of calling upon these ideas, these ideas of America that he would have been brought up with, that I think all Americans are brought up with. But what's, I think, you know, not to give away too much, I think what's what I thought was important was that that attempt at exorcism would fail that Mm. the magic that he cites, you know, this is, it's in the name of people that I drive you out. The demon laughs, the demon laughs at that. And, you know, I think about today, this day, this election day, um, you know, the idea of whatever the outcome, the idea of the people driving out, you know, evil through a gesture, a vote, uh, you know, signing a petition, it's a distraction from the ongoing prevalence of dark practices in, in the United States. And it, it, it shows, I think, you know, when Franklin makes that appeal, it shows, yes, it's a moment of courage, but it's also, it reveals his boyish naivete that this, you know, summoning these magic
0: words will be enough. And of course, yeah,
1: it, it, it sadly
0: is not. No. Well, still, fingers, eyes and toes cross for tonight, even if it is just a gesture. Absolutely. Well, that's a good place to leave it, if you don't mind just quickly answering my rapid-fire four questions that I ask each of my guests. Sure. First thing that comes to mind, that's what I always want. Question one, what was your gateway to horror? I would
1: say Stephen King's Salem's Lot. That, That just scared the hell out of me, and I remember my mother was very liberal about what she let me read but uh she confiscated that book because it was it was just freaking me out so badly and of course I bought another copy and finished it but that was um, because it was and I think as well it was set in a small town that reminded me of my small town it felt like this could happen in the very reality I was living in so
0: that was uh, I've never looked back from that. I've got a friend who still cannot sleep with the windows open. <laughs> window. Genuinely can't. 35-year-old man has to sleep with the window shut, with the curtains shut. <laughs> if you had to recommend one book to our listeners that wasn't written by you, what would it be and why? Well, I,
1: I always recommend, especially with, with to people who are maybe curious about reading horror but are reluctant uh, or don't know the way in, I recommend Come Closer by Sarah Gran. It's a short novel about a woman who may or may not, step by step, becoming p- possessed by a demon. So here we go, Demons again. But uh, it's a mm-hmm. wonderful novel, short,
0: sweet, scary as hell, and funny too, uh, Come Closer. Okay, that's a nice different one. I always like when I get different, slightly more of niche uh, recommendations rather than just, you know, a Stephen King book. That's great. Third question, what piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror author? I think I would say in addition to the
1: usual advice of, you know, read everything you can and write as much as you can. And I, I think my advice would be to lean into whatever personal inclinations or obsessions or fetishes you might have uh, to, in order to, um, you know, to, to, not pay attention to the market factors of, oh, this seems to be a popular Uh, corner of the genre at this time. I think that's death. I think one should follow no matter how weird, hopefully they are especially weird, but to follow the personal as opposed to the cultural or the social or or the, the trends of the marketplace.
0: Okay, that's nice and affirmative. That's what I'm trying to do myself at the moment. Lastly, lastly, what truly scares you? I'm scared. You know, I think it's interesting. I think I would have answered that dif- that question
1: dif- differently five years ago. I might have said something like drowning or some, you know, sort of something of that kind. I think now I would say what frightens me is seeing in very subtle ways, perhaps at first, how, but how easily the social fabric can fall apart and how, you know, your neighbors, you can sort of one day sort of cheerfully wait, be waving hello. And the next day, through one kind of tension or difference or invitation, um, or opportunity, they change. And that, that frightens me. And it, it reminds me of how, uh, you know, what the things that keep us together that make us human are very fragile. They must, and it must be nurtured and protected and defended. And uh, that, that, the, and the, and the, the demonic forces that sometimes seek to unravel the things that hold us together, that frightens me a lot.
0: Well, that is a very profound and pertinent answer for today of all days. So, that, that really is the kind of final word on our election day special. So, Andrew, the very best of luck with the book. I mean, it's had some great reviews so far. I recommend everyone read it. And thank you very much for talking Scared with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Neil. So I really enjoyed that chat with Andrew. I especially liked his knowledge of White House hauntings over the years. I recommend The Residence to anyone who likes historical fiction or horror or the bit where the Venn diagram overlaps. Um, It's a really satisfyingly put together book that creates its own mythos. But really, how are you all feeling today? I know that I've got listeners from all over the US in, in blue states and red states alike. And I just sincerely hope that you're all well, that you all got the chance to vote and that whatever happens, it happens peacefully. I've not exactly hidden my feelings on Donald Trump, and I'll be watching the coverage all night from across the Atlantic in in fits of terror and optimism. But most of all, I just hope that democracy gets its day. It, it feels like, most of all, that this election is a referendum on the kind of politics we want going forwards. A return to seriousness, responsibility and respect would be nice, regardless of who it's from. Whew. Anyway, okay. apologies for that awkward spasm of earnestness. It doesn't come naturally to us Brits. Um, If you are up all night watching the news like me, then say hi on Twitter. As ever, you can find me at TalkScaredPod, where you'll no doubt find me spewing bile into the ether for most of the evening. Rage is always more fun when it's shared, so do join in. Um, If you'd like to email the show directly, as some listeners now have, then you can send messages to TalkingScaredPod.com. At gmail.com. I'd like to say hi especially to Jennifer Larrison, who emailed in with an author recommendation and alerted me to the fact that one of my favourite writers is in fact a pseudonym. So thanks, Jennifer, I'll be sure to follow up on your request. The show's really jumped up in, in listener numbers over the last few weeks, especially off the back of the T. Kingfisher episode. If you listened to that and liked it, welcome aboard and do try some of the other things on the menu. If any of you could drop me a quick review on Apple Podcasts, then that helps other people find the show that bit more easily. As we head into the unknown, I wish you all the best. Winter is coming, lockdown looms in various parts of the globe, and who knows what the morning will bring for the world. But we've always got books, stories, and each other, so keep the faith. And remember, even now, it's good to be scared.